Well, do keep your Bibles open at Isaiah chapter 58. Dean Swift, an 18th century gentleman and quite a character who wrote Gulliver's Travels, once made this observation about the fashionable ladies of his day. Why only the ladies? I don't know. But he said this, they were so busy being religious that they had no time to say their prayers. So busy being religious, they had no time to say their prayers. What he was highlighting, really, was their religious formality. They were going through the motions, and yet there was something missing, something that had to be addressed. Now, we know there's something seriously wrong at the beginning of this chapter. If you look at verse 1, when the prophet is told to speak loudly and publicly, not to hold back, that is to shout at the top of his voice, literally in the Hebrew. He has just been talking in the previous chapter, we studied chapter 57, about false prophets. False prophets did not act like watchmen, that is, they didn't shout out danger. They did not act like watchdogs, they did not bark when an intruder came, nor did they act like shepherds, that is, caring for and nourishing and cherishing the flock of God, but rather ignoring them doing their own thing and pleasing themselves. And so God comes to Isaiah the prophet and says, I want you to do what they don't do. I want you to cry aloud, not to hold back, anything profitable for the people of God. I want you to lift up your voice like a trumpet. The trumpet was often sounded to attract attention or to sound the alarm or to summon God's people to gather before God. I want you to speak powerfully to these people. And who are you to speak to, Isaiah? It's not to everybody in general. I'm not asking you to go out onto the streets of the city and to speak to the general population. I want you to speak to my church, my people. Verse 1. The house of Jacob, the end of verse 1. So before we draw any wrong conclusions about what this chapter is about, we find right at the very beginning of the chapter that these, these words, this prophecy, is intended to be delivered to the church, that is, the people of God God's people, then in Isaiah's day, and because he's a prophet in our day as well. God is speaking to his own covenant people. He did not speak in such warm terms about the worldly church in chapter 57, where he described, or where Isaiah describes, the paganization of the church, the intrusion into the church of pagan ideas, pagan habits, pagan philosophy, pagan behavior, the, acceptable, the, the kind of rationalization by which the church is making paganism normative within its own bounds. God did not speak to them in these terms. He did not say of them, my people. And so Isaiah is speaking to a different kind of person here in chapter 58. What kind of person is he speaking to? Well, look at the beginning of verse 2. These people are apparently spiritual people. They even may appear 
to be super spiritual people, the kind of people that make you feel guilty, that make you feel inadequate, the kind of people you don't really want to be anywhere near. And uh, this is why they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. These people are not the worldly church of chapter 57. They actually believe in God. That's a good thing. Uh, That's a good place to start. They wanted to know about God, and they sought Him daily. They listened to the preaching of Isaiah 55 when it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. And so they listened to that, and literally in the Hebrew it says, Me they seek. They were looking for God. They were worshiping the true God. They were out to find Him. In, uh, in the Old Testament, this idea of seeking God is to take God seriously. It, it's, it presupposes a view of God that only believers have, that the God of Israel is not a static given, but a dynamic reality who must be engaged in order to be known, in order to be found, and in order to be known. Now, I'm looking for an illustration to try and work with as we, as we try to get our heads around what's being taught in this chapter. If you can imagine a couple, they, they are a very well-known couple, they're very famous, they're very popular in parties and social gatherings. The man is very uh, clever, very intelligent, very wealthy. The woman is stunning, absolutely stunning. You can see as you watch them, watch them come in that this guy enjoys bringing her to the party. He enjoys showing her off to his friends. She is, apparently, because I'm telling the story, she is a static given in his life. In other words, he sees her as an object. He's married to her, but he sees her as an object to take with him into those social gatherings in order to give him kudos among his friends. As he sees them looking at her, he feels better about himself. And it's possible in a relationship, it is possible, because they make movies about this, so it must be possible, it's possible to have such a relationship going on, whereby a man treats his wife as a static given. She is there. She is just there. And she is there for the moments where it suits him to show her off. The God of Israel is sometimes regarded by His people in such terms as a static given. But the Bible increasingly, repeatedly tells us that the God who is there needs to be sought. He needs to be looked for. He is a dynamic reality who must be engaged in order to be known and found. In other words, in our relationship with God, we are to seek the Lord while He may be found. We are to find out about Him. We want to know His character, His nature, His likes and His dislikes, the things He loves that give Him pleasure. It is a relationship between persons, the relationship between God's people and God. And therefore, as a relationship, which is intended, by the way, to be a love relationship, this relationship involves personal knowledge. Now, 
on the surface, that's what these people were doing. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. But read on. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. The devil is in the detail. It is in those words, as if. That's what it looks like. As you're looking on at this, these people and their relationship with God, it looks like they're righteous people. It looks like they're seeking after God. It looks like they have a relationship, that they are engaged with God, that they actually are pursuing something more than a superficial knowledge of God, that He is not simply a static given to them, but a dynamic reality to them. But you would be wrong, as if, God says, they appear to do this, they do it daily, they appear to delight to know my ways, but there is something wrong in the relationship. There is a formalism, a formality in the relationship. There is something not quite real and vibrant The emotions of these people are not really engaged with the God that they worship. Look at the way they talk. This usually is a hint at how they, how people, where the people really are, spiritually speaking. They have, they have questions, you see, and they have complaints. And their questions and their complaints are directed against God, verse 3. Here is why God raises the question as if. Here, here, here is the reason. Verse 3. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Go back to my analogy. Here is the husband with a trophy wife. They're having words. Somewhere the worm has turned and she is not cooperating. And he is asking, why are you not cooperating? I work hard. I slave myself at the office all the time to give you the sports car and to give you the fancy clothes and to let you go and get yourself done. And the, you know, the, uh, what, I won't go into any of those other things that you might want done. But he, he says, I don't, I've done all of that for you. You have your own credit card and you can spend it. And he's saying all this, and we're thinking as we listen on, what a yobble he is. He has absolutely no idea how to handle a woman. That is certainly not what she wants to hear. She is looking for something deeper, something deeper in this superficial ass, something deeper than the kind of way he's talking to her. The way he talks to her indicates the shallowness of his relationship with her. Listen to the way these people are talking to God. We did this. We put ourselves out for you. We went on a fast because we, we wanted you to notice us. And yet, they're saying to God, we're not feeling the love here. You know, this, you know we're just not feeling the kind of response we thought we'd get from you. You know, we, we sing your praise, but you know, we're just not feeling the, 
the energy in our, in our praise. We, we go to church and, and we, we, we leave it cold, indifferent. We're not getting a result from our religion. You are not paying attention. You see it not. You haven't even acknowledged our devotion. You take no knowledge. Now, I want you to look at the heart of this relationship here, their relationship with God. Their religion, and I'm using religion in the very best sense of the way in which we worship God and serve Him, their religion was a quid pro quo relationship, cause and effect. We do this for you, you do stuff for us. We engage in these religious activities, and we're looking for some payback. We want to feel better about ourselves. We want to see our prayers being answered in this, that, and the other way. We want spiritual revival in our church. We want more people coming. We want to see the budgets rising. We want some kind of… we want to feel the love. And we're not feeling the love. Now, this, is the, this was the issue. It wasn't working out the way they wanted it to. And so they had this sense that God was distant and disinterested. And so you have the picture in verse 3 of people who are devoted to God on the one hand and mad with God on the other. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? There are two issues raised by this text. Some people do religious stuff because it pleases them. To put it simply, they see their service. Not just fasting. You know, one of the issues of this passage is that you read the commentaries and so forth, or you hear people preach in the passage. I remember as a boy going to hear some to hear somebody preach. He was very famous. He was part of the nascent charismatic movement. He preached on this, and he preached on the subject, God's chosen fast, and he made the whole passage be about fasting. I saw an article this week in which somebody was arguing that fasting is good for you. It's good for your health. It's a good way to diet, girls. Uh, I don't know why I said girls, but it's a good way to diet, fast. Go on a fast and, and, and you'll lose weight. As if the whole point of fasting is for some kind of physical betterment for you. I, I looked somewhere else and people are saying this is all about social action. Well, let me tell you, it's not any about any of those two things. In fact, fasting isn't even the main subject at all. It's illustrative because you'll notice if you run your eye to the end of the passage, he then goes on to talk about the Sabbath. So it's only illustrative of a principle. And here is the principle. We do our religious stuff because we want to do it. We may spend our time in service. We may do lots of, lots of stuff, tiring ourselves out, wearing ourselves thin in order to serve sacrificially, whether it's the homeless meal or whether it's some other form of service. But that's the way we feel about it. We are really giving ourselves sacrificially to this thing. And these people... In this text, people are either doing that because it pleases them as an act of self-indulgence, because they get satisfaction from doing it, or they feel significant because they do it, or to prove to themselves and to other people that they really are spiritual people. Or they do it as a sort of magic, a device to get God to do what they want God to do. They want to have leverage with God. They deprived themselves of food, these people, 
to get some gain from God. Now, think about it for a moment. Think about the principle for a moment. He could have been saying the very same thing about having your quiet time, or tithing, or church attendance, or Christian service, or spiritual disciplines, or acts of self-denial, or going on a mission trip, or whatever it might be. The issue is how you view those things when the chips are down and when there is no return, when there is no sense or feeling that God is with you in a special way or God is blessing you in a special way, usually in the way you define for yourself. So God evaluates, the middle of verse 3, God begins to evaluate why they're doing what they do. And here's his evaluation of them. Again, it's the principle. He says this to them, Behold, the day in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. We'll come to that in a moment. So here's what we need to say about fasting in the Bible. The Bible, that is the law of God in the Bible, in the Torah, only required fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement as a corporate recognition of human repentance before God that required the atonement of the sacrificed animal. In other words, once a year in the law on the Day of Atonement as an indication of genuine repentance. Now, it's true that at other times of national crisis, when the church was under threat, there could be a call to people to pray and fast to seek God's mercy because they'd sinned. Again, it was always a sign of repentance. But nowhere in the Bible was fasting enjoined as a regular feature of the life of God's people. You remember by Jesus' time? What are the Pharisees doing? The Pharisees are fasting several times a week. Not only are they fasting several times a week, they're making sure everybody knows they're fasting several times a week. They had special makeup they wore in order to make them look pale and gaunt. They were makeup experts in order to communicate the idea that they were really suffering for the kingdom. So this is not a new thing. In fact, the interesting thing is, if you do a study of Matthew's gospel, and notice how it is in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is using... Isaiah as the script for his life, it's not surprising that in the Sermon on the Mount that he should pick up this very self-same theme of fasting. It just comes out of nowhere, but it's not out of nowhere. It's out of Isaiah. He addresses the people. Let me show you the way in which this fasting program that they had enjoined in or joined in was having an effect. Behold, on the day you fast, you seek your own pleasure. That is, you're choosing to do it. This is your choice. It's not my command. It's your choice. Uh, Around about this time of year, uh, a lot of people celebrate the old Roman rite of Lent. We are Protestants in this church, so we don't do Lent. Uh, Good to remember that. But people who do do Lent, and by the way, you can choose to do it off your own back, but just remember you're a Protestant, please. Uh, Don't talk about it. But uh, at times like these, people regularly tell you what it is they're giving up for Lent. 
chocolate, <laughs> caffeine, cakes, candies, all things you could have done without anyway, but you know, if it makes you feel good, that's fine. That's fine. God challenges them here. He says, when you behold the day of your fast, you seek your own plan. You're choosing to do this. This is your choice, not mine. And when you do it, look at what you do. You oppress your workers. Now, he's talking, remember, to Israel. He's talking to the church. He's talking about the people who worked in their extended household. He's not thinking of a factory. They didn't have factories. He's thinking of a household and the people who worked in the household who were fellow Jews. They were fellow believers. Many of them were contracted to work as slaves. A slavery, you remember, was nothing like the African slavery, slave trade. The slavery you find in the Bible was very much an economic device. Uh, if you were low in funds, if you were, if you were in dire straits or whatever, you could engage yourself to be, to serve in someone's extended household as a slave for a period of time. You would be remunerated for that. You would be kept, uh, you know, you would be well kept by, by the person and so on. And, and then after three years, you would be uh, free to, to leave. You'd be liberated from your slavery. So it's a different ballgame altogether. But these were the people who were working in the home. Behold, let's read on. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit. Now, get this. Isaiah knows what he's doing here. He's describing these people. And what are they doing? Why are they quarrelsome? And why are they argumentative? And why do they want to hit someone? Well, what are they doing? They're, they're on a fast. I mean, I know people, if they don't get their lunch, they want to hit someone. I'm one of these people that doesn't need lunch. I think it's the most pointless meal of the day. I don't see any purpose in it whatsoever because I'm obviously holier than they are. But, but that's, that, that these, there are these people I know and they cannot even miss lunch by five minutes without needing therapy. So... These people that he's describing, you see, here on this fast, they are fighting. They are, they're being, they're really quarreling with their workers, the people at home. They're, they're fighting this collateral damage all around them, basically. And uh, this is all happening because they're just, they're on a spiritual trip that they have chosen for themselves. They're doing their own pleasure, doing their own thing, and they're doing it for their own ends. And everybody else is suffering as a result of what they have decided to do. Now, you know, there are people who come up with all kinds of harebrained schemes, and they want, I'm trying to find a way of illustrating this in our day. People come up with all kinds of harebrained schemes, and they want the rest of us to fund it. I mean, I once had one of those. I was in Saint-Tropez in the south of France. And, uh, well, it wasn't just me. The family were there. But uh, in the evenings, we would go for a walk down by the docks. And all these multi-multi-multi-multi-billionaires would reverse in their huge yachts uh, into the dock. And uh, their lackeys dressed in their, in their dinner suits would start to set the tables and put out all the silverware and goldware on the table, and there would be 
copious food brought out, and these people all in their very best, the women all dressed to the nines would sit down and have their food. There in front of us, while we're all standing, ogling this sheer luxury that these people are enjoying. But I was standing there, and I had an epiphany one night. The words came into my mind. I'm sure they were sponsored by the Spirit. Mediterranean ministries. And I thought I've got biblical basis for this. Jesus used to teach on the back of a boat. And Paul, he sailed the Mediterranean in boats. He did. I mean, I know they got into storms and sunk, but that's, that's immaterial. Let's get back to the point. Uh, Paul also swam in the Mediterranean. He obviously enjoyed swimming in the Mediterranean, even though it was a shipwreck. I'm sure he enjoyed swimming in the Mediterranean because it is the best place to swim in. And, uh, and I thought, so I had a biblical basis. <laughs> and uh, all I needed really was for the Christian people I knew to raise the multiple millions of dollars for me to buy the yacht, and I'd be set up for life. Mediterranean ministries. I think I'd enjoy going to all the ports of the Mediterranean, backing in my great ship, having dinner set, and then, of course, preaching the gospel to those who came to see the the luxury in which I was living. Nobody ever bought into that, by the way. I just mention it now in case anyone has any inspiration. But do you know, do do you know how in so many ways in Christian circles, there are people who do their own pleasure. They come up with their own idea and then expect the rest of us to fund it. That's the same principle here. It's the same principle. Not only were they doing that and and creating havoc because they were so bad-tempered because they were on a fast, but they were also making sure that everybody else saw that they were on a fast. Verse 5, is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed, to spread sackcloth and ashes? They were making themselves look as miserable as they possibly could. They were making sure everybody knew what they were doing, that they were advertising their piety, They weren't doing this out of a heart for people or for God. Remember Jesus in his own critique of fasting does not say fasting is wrong, but he does point the finger at people who were multiplying these things, multiplying the number of fasts and advertising their piety. Listen to what God has to say about people who do that. Verse 4, fasting like yours this day, will not make your voice be heard on high. It will not have the effect of getting through to God because you're doing it for your sake, not my sake. Verse 5, will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to God? No, of course not. So we have the Lord's challenge in verse 6. And God's challenge to them is simply this. Look, if you would just obey the verses of the Bible you know, instead of finding alternative ways to demonstrate your piety, if you would just obey the verses of the Bible you know, that would be a good place for you to start. Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, he's talking about the people who had taken on help, fellow believers, fellow Israelites, people of God, brought them on into the family, into the household, 
and kept them there indefinitely. Had not let them go free like the law said after three years, but had kept them on and was keeping them down and keeping them in their place and not taking care of them properly. And God says to them, look, loose the bonds of wickedness, undo the straps of the yoke, let those who are oppressed go free and break, uh, and break every yoke. Let them go. I told you in my law that's what you should do. You're inventing a reason for fasting, but actually I didn't ordain that, but I did ordain this. You get on with obeying me in your house, at home, in these practical areas, frankly, that are going to cost you more than deciding not to eat chocolate for a little while or skip lunch for a little while. You let those people go. Then I'll be impressed. Then I'll listen to you. Then I'll take notice of you. You get on believing the Bible and obeying the Bible you know without making up other stuff or inventing other ways to demonstrate your piety and your godliness and your willingness to serve. That would be a good thing. This whole idea of freedom and liberty is one of the big ideas in, in Isaiah's prophecy as he talks about the Messiah's servant who brings freedom. And uh, here, of course, he's talking about literal physical freedom, but I think there's a spiritual principle there that others have recognized as well, that he's saying, don't put burdens of guilt on people. Don't put burdens on other believers that they ought not to have. Don't let them have to pay for your decisions. Care for them. Care for them. And uh, in verse 7, share your bread. Be generous towards the, the, those in the fellowship who are needy and hungry and so on. And don't forget, don't forget that you shouldn't cut yourself off from members of your own family, your own house, the homeless poor in your house, your own flesh at the end of verse 7, your own flesh and blood. So it's a challenge, really, to biblical behavior, the kind of things that God requires of His people. Don't hold up one thing that's, quite frankly, you know, you can choose to do that or not. Do the stuff that we've been called upon and challenged about in God's Word to do. This is long-term implications for the people of God. Well, in verse 8, there's the Lord's promise. The Lord's evaluation, the Lord's challenge, the Lord's promise. On the basis of that, that is, on the basis of religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father, as James defines it, which is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. That kind of genuine religion that serves others, that loves our brothers and sisters, that loves our neighbor, that kind of genuine religion, which demonstrates that it's from the heart, gets the attention of God. And there's lots of all kinds of applications of that for us today, but here's God's promise for those who take that seriously. It's in a series of thens. Then, verse 8, 
Your light shall break forth like the dawn. There'll be a new day. Then all these things that are burning you down and you're wondering why it is that you're doing this and there's no evidence of God prospering you more or, or no evidence of God hearing your prayer more uh, instinctively, you hearing that he, knowing that he's answering your prayer. This, this sense that God is not near. This idea that you're not feeling the love of God in your heart. He says, you know, this is what you should be doing. This is, if you're doing these things, if you're going a bit deeper, if your relationship is deeper, then you won't, you won't have to ask me for these things. Go back to my illustration of the man and the woman again. You get to know her. The way we are meant to get to know God, you get to know her heart. You get to know her character. You get to know her mind, her wisdom. You get to know what she loves. You get to know what brings her pleasure and not pain. You get to know the things that she values. You get to know the things that are precious to her. You get to know those things. And then be the kind of man that she would love. You don't have to ask for anything. That's the picture that's being painted here. You know God. And you know what's on his mind. And you know what brings him pleasure. And you know what he loves. And you seek to treat him that way. Then, says God, it'll be like a new day in our relationship. You will feel that the relationship is healthy and that you are healed. And your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God shall be your rear guard. You'll be under his protection. He'll be on your side and you'll know it. He'll be beside you and you'll know it. He'll be with you and you'll know it. You'll know it. You'll call and the Lord will answer. And you'll cry out and he'll say to you, I'm here. I'm here, my beloved one, I'm here. Because you'll know him. This is a believers, by the way. These are believers who know God and they're being encouraged to know God better, more than formally, more than simply having him as an accessory, but as the reality Remember I said at the very beginning, if I can even remember what I said at the very beginning, uh, with that quotation that, that, I, that, I, that I said, that in, in knowing, in know, we can either know God as a given or as a dynamic reality. God is either a static given in that first picture I painted of the man and the woman. The wife is a static Given, He's not bothered about her most of the time, except when he needs her on his arm at some function. She is a dynamic reality he needs to get to know. God is not a static given who just is there when we need him or want him. He is someone to be pursued, someone to be engaged with, someone to be sought with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And 
that God will guide you continually. Verse 11, you won't have to ask for guidance. He'll just be doing it. And he'll satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you'll be like a watered garden, refreshment, spiritual refreshment. And you'll be established for eternity, verse 12. Ancient ruins rebuilt, raised the foundations of many generations, and you'll be called the repairers of the breach and the recoverer of streets to dwell in an established heart and an established life. And so God gives a prescription to these people. And his prescription to them is this. You don't have to make up special days. I've given you a special day. That's the point of the Sabbath reference there in verse 13. I've given you a special day. The day I've given you is not a fast day, but a feast day. What God is saying, if we can run back to verse 8, there is a day in which you can have a brand new day. You can feel healed, restored. You can know the glory of God as your rear guard. You can call and you know that God is answering you. You can cry and you will hear God say to you, here I am. The Lord will guide you continually, and that day you'll know that. He'll satisfy your desire. He'll make you refreshed like a watered garden. And He'll do that by His Word. Verse 14, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. Do you see how the beginning and end of this chapter are tied together by a reference to Jacob, a reference to the people of God? These people who were superficial in their relationship, formal in their relationship, but if they take advantage of what God offers on the Sabbath day and the blessings that He pours out on His people on the Sabbath day, when the mouth of the Lord speaks to them, these promises of God ring in our ears. We discover that the Sabbath day is not a fast day, but a feast day. And he counters all the negativism of the beginning of the chapter with all the positive words of verses 6 through 12. And he sets the feast over against the fast. And he says to his people, I'm more interested in you enjoying my blessings through obedience than I am in you imposing on yourself self-imposed deprivations that are unnecessary, unnecessary, that are of your devising. Why don't you just stick with my very simple program of means of grace, the Lord's day, the Lord's word, the Lord's people, and the Lord's blessings that come to his people as they gather on the Lord's day. And guess what? The Sabbath is in the commandments. Fasting isn't. It's prescribed by God, so therefore you know that if you keep the Sabbath, that you are keeping the Word of God, that you're in the will of God. You don't want to, you'll not need to ask, am I in the will of God or not? You will be in the will of God because it's in the commandments. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's part and parcel of God's provision. And from our New 
New Covenant, New Testament perspective. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That means He's over it. He reigns over it. He is present in it. It's all about Him and in Him. Guess what? Every spiritual blessing is to be found in Him. Flows from Him. Flows into our lives from Him. Refreshes us. Renews us. Quickens us. Makes us alive. So for all of us who are tempted by religious formalism, all of us who are tempted to find other ways. You know, there was a period where uh, there were lots and lots of books being written about the spiritual disciplines and so on that had been lost that needed to be recovered. And people were into that in a big way. And I read most of that literature and so forth. And it seemed to me that, in, that what we wanted to do was to make the Christian life more complicated than God did. It's not complicated. It's all of grace. And God's ordained one day in the midst of our busy lives where the grace of God is available to His people. And on Monday morning, we go out to mix with a world that's in rebellion against Him, but we also go to interact with believing people and to love them for Jesus' sake. To love them for Jesus' sake. I want you to look around yourself in this church this morning. I encourage you to do that regularly. Look around. These are real people. You're worshiping with people. You're not here as a static given yourself. You're part of the dynamic energy of the people of God. And uh, you notice there's ways of using the Sabbath there at the end of verse 13, 14. Calling it a delight, a holy day, honorable to the Lord, taking delight in the Lord, and so on. Not seeking your own pleasure but the pleasure of others. There's something you can do in the Sabbath day. Welcome someone who's lonely. Encourage someone who's down. Befriend someone who's friendless. Love the church of God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by the help of your Holy Spirit, we'd apply this to ourselves. Forgive us for our super spirituality at times where we have our ideas, ways of appearing more pious than others, and you need to crucify that within us. We ask you to do that. Help us to live as those who obey the commands we've been given, as those who live joyfully keeping your commands, especially those that apply to the way we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for your great grace to fall upon us and to energize us for your service, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.